Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Good to stand upon your promises as we conclude this series, Standing on the Promises. Thank you that you have chosen us and called us, not because of our accomplishments, not because of our strengths, but as you said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, I, I chose you because you were the least of all peoples. So Father, we just rest in your faithfulness today. We rest in your choosing and we ask uh, to be used of you to help others know that you have chosen them. In Jesus' name, amen. Eleven years ago, I shared a message at the Adventist Church in Alamosa, Colorado called A Remnant of the Lame. I know that sounds like a, a strange title, but through a chain of events over the last couple of months, God led me back to that message and put it on my heart to share with you this morning. First of all, I was able to meet Carl Wilkins after church on May 27th. Carl was the, it was right here, just over there where Pastor Carol's sitting, that I met a, a hero, so to speak, to me. Carl was the only Adventist and one of two Americans to stay in Rwanda through the genocide of 1994. Next was a conversation with one of our post-collegiates on June 17th, just about where um, John Appel is sitting right now, a young woman that I met uh, on June 17th after a sermon entitled Shepherds in which she talked about the fact that based on that message, she was feeling God's affirmation and calling in her life. Then on July 1st, I rediscovered this remnant of the lame message as I was searching my computer for another um, resource to share with a friend. And finally, after a conversation with Jason Churchwell about an organization that he is involved with, that advocates for children, I was convinced that God was saying, <clears throat> I need you to talk on this remnant of the lame today. The title comes from one of my favorite Bible promises in relationship to the remnant. It's Micah 4, 6, and 7, um, and it was read for our scripture this morning, um, and here's what it says. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. What is the significance of this passage in relationship to our Adventist understanding of the concept of remnant? There's no doubt that according to Revelation 12, 17, that the remnant is described as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. But what is the significance of the Lord's promise to make the lame a remnant? According to the theologian James E. Smith in his Old Testament survey of the minor prophets, the gathering in this passage that he says, I will gather, 
is an ongoing process. It's, it's a participle. And the word lame is essentially linking the people of God to like limping sheep. Earlier in uh, Micah, I think 2 verses 13 and 15, it re refers to God's people as a flock. This may also, Smith suggests, be an allusion to Jacob's limp after he wrestled with God through the night in Genesis 32. And as an Adventist community, we think about Jacob's trouble and wrestling with God in the end. This gathering of the lame also, for me, brings to mind a story from my friend Tim Pellandini when he went to serve in Haiti after a massive earthquake in 2010. On January 12, 2010, a quake of 7.0 on the Richter scale rocked the capital city of Port-au-Prince and its epicenter 15 miles southwest shook that whole region. Two months later, on March 12, 2010, Tim arrived on the first, that's, that's working, it's just, I put a blank slide in. Tim, <clears throat> Tim arrived on the first flight from, that was allowed for, to travel from Santa Domingo to the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince since the initial catastrophe. After returning from the relief effort towards the end of March, Tim sent me an email describing the scenes of the trauma he witnessed. One especially poignant moment in his message took place in a step-down unit where he was helping rehab patients who were injured in the quake. Here's what he wrote in his email. It was late when I arrived at Hospital Adventiste de Haiti de Kine. Introductions were brief. I was directed to a nearby army cot and I gratefully shed my bags and soon fell into a listless sleep. Sabbath morning included breakfast, a short orientation, and a 7.30 a.m. church service. We then met our supervisor from Handicap International and received our assignments, which included treating, uh, treating the patients in a step-down tent uh, wards in front of the hospital. We were also to look for any signs of infection or complications. My assignment had a list of 37 patients on it, red tents and white tents, four, six, and 10. The step-down unit was full of amputees and orthopedic injuries, most with external fixators to stabilize crushed bones while they heal. I was prepared for the medical things that I would see, but the hot sun that beat on the canvas, and by noon the temperature intense was well over 100 Degrees, I wasn't quite prepared for that. My patients ranged in age from 3 to 88. It was slow going the first day as my interpreter spoke very broken English. Things picked up speed when we realized that the names of, on my list were listed last name and then first name. The patients were standoffish initially, but by the end of the day, I knew we would have a good week, or so I thought. She, uh, one old lady, Tim writes, stands out in my memory. She was 83 and had a crushed hip from her home falling in on her. She had a pinning, but the bone had taken a long time to heal. She had been in bed for eight weeks. She was carried into the orthopedic clinic, and x-rays showed she had enough ossification to begin bearing weight. Time 
for rehabilitation. She was so weak, she just blankly stared at me when I entered the tent. There were seven other patients in her tent. I looked around and each lay on their own cot. No smiles or even looks of anticipation. One young man looked up and then laid his head back without expression. I had my interpreter try to explain to the lady that her bone had healed and it was time to try and move and learn to walk again. I could tell he was struggling to make her understand and after several attempts, I redirected him and asked her if we could dance. Her eyes brightened with a questioning look. I helped her sit up and then, and then uh, stand. She was tiny, barely up to my rib cage. Tim's about my height, maybe an inch taller. She clung to my arms with her hands. She was fearful at first, but I hummed softly and we started to rock from side to side. She relaxed and moved with me. This is a typical rehab trick to help people move, and so I thought nothing of it until I heard a clap. I looked up over her gray and disheveled hair, and the young man who had, the young man who had given me such a blank expression was sitting up and he was clapping. The others turned and looked and smiles broke out. My confidence soared. By Tuesday of that week, Tim, Tim, Tim knew his patients by name and they would get, greet him with a smile whenever he entered the tent to check on them and perform physical therapy. However, the smiles faded as they began to share their stories of trauma. His ministry to their physical injuries established a trust in which they began to talk about the wounds of the heart. The first gut-wrenching story was from the 11-year-old sister of Stephen. At the time, Stephen was four. His femur was broken when the roof of the family house fell on him. His three other siblings and both parents were killed in the home. All they had now... Stephen and his sister was each other and nowhere to go once Stephen no longer needed hospital care. Another blow was walking into our sleeping quarters, Tim writes, to find one of our nursing staff crying. She had met a patient in ICU that had shared her story. This patient had two crushed femurs and other injuries, the extent of which I am not aware, Tim writes. The girl was 12 at the time. She opened up to her nurse and shared that she was happy, happy to be in the hospital after the quake because she was captive prior to that quake as a forced sex slave. She was rescued from the rubble and brought to the hospital for treatment. She had no family, no home, nothing. Tim concludes his email with the following reflection. My feelings cannot connect the devastation that I saw with the brighter moments of dancing with the destitute, except that I see the parallel in a God who will dance over me while I am destitute in my sin and daily falling short of his grace. In light of Tim's email, 
I love the way the message paraphrase articulates God's promise to gather a remnant of the lame. Here's how it phrases it. And if I could get a water bottle down there, please. On that great day, God says, I will round up all the hurt and homeless, everyone I have bruised or banished. I will transform the battered into a company of the elite. I will transform the battered into a company of the elite. I will make a strong nation out of the long lost, a showcase exhibit of God's rule in action as I rule from Mount Zion from here to eternity. If you are broken today, if you are battered or bereaved, grieving, you are remnant material. If you've been bruised, banished, you are remnant material. The Lord is seeking for all the lost and lame, all the grieving and forsaking. The invitation of our shepherd is come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But how? How do we respond to this invitation if we, when we find ourselves weary or crippled or fearful? or ashamed. I know through my own struggles sometimes with anxiety that when you're down and out, it's hard to even cry out. What is it about Jesus that gives him the authority to give us rest? How is he able to help us stand to our feet and walk again? Maybe you're thinking, a remnant of the lame? Well, that sounds a little too good to be true, preacher. You don't know how lame I am. You don't know how discouraged and fed up I feel. You see, I've prayed for my children. I've prayed for my family. I've prayed for those I love, and they weren't healed. Some are dead. Some are addicted. Some have left God. And me, I've, I'm feeling paralyzed and indif indifferent and checked out and alone. So tell me, how is Jesus going to empower me to walk again? How is he going to give feet to my faith and hope to my hands which are tired of praying because the answer always seems to be no? How am I supposed to be a part of the remnant when my heart feels too broken to surrender and too weary to trust? Well, if you'd allow me to share, I'd like to direct your attention to a scripture in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Here's what it says. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Friend, Jesus invites us into the fellowship of his Father through the fellowship of his suffering. In other words, you do not suffer alone. 
He understands what it is to feel lame and weak as he was there in the garden saying, my soul is grieved unto death. And then he goes on, the author of Hebrews, and he says this. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. God gathers, Jesus gathers a remnant of the lame by sharing in our struggles and and by overcoming through his life, death, and resurrection. Through his life, we have been set free, free from fear and anxiety by him who has defeated death by dying, freed by the one who chose to deliver us by joining us in the hardship of the human experience. When I think about Jesus gathering a remnant of the lame uh, and entering into our struggles, I can't help but think of this story from the experience of Carl Wilkins. I mentioned earlier, one of two Americans to stay in Rwanda through the genocide. He was serving as the director of the Adventist Development and Relief Agency at the time, 1994, and from start to finish, only two stayed through the entire trauma, a Catholic nun named Sister Charles Marie Serafino and this Adventist relief worker, Carl Wilkins. His experience during this time echoes the experience of Jesus. In his book entitled, I'm Not Leaving, Wilkins tells of the day when he watched his family drive away as the conditions in Rwanda worsened and why he felt so compelled to stay. He says, I stood barefoot in the middle of the dusty street, waving goodbye to the most precious people in the world. The armadillo, that's what we called our camper truck, waddled around the corner as I lowered my hand. Looking around, I made sure our neighbors saw that I was not leaving. If anyone had ideas about breaking into our home and going after Anitha, the young lady who worked for us, or Jan Vier, our young night watchman, I would be there. I didn't know what I would do if we were attacked, but I would be there. Going back inside our home, I could see the fear on the faces of Anitha and Jan Vier. Their ID cards both had the word Tutsi on them, cl- classifying them among Rwanda's minority tribe. But now it was more than simply a tribal designation. It marked them for extermination. For Teresa and me, Anita and Yanvier put a very real face on the Tutsi people of Rwanda. Having them physically with us in our home kept our hearts engaged in, in the decision for me to stay, preventing logic or fear from dominating our thoughts. It's amazing how the physical presence of a person can change the outcome of a situation. Simply being there is often the most powerful factor in making the right decision, a decision we will not regret for the rest of our lives. Anitha and Jan Vier's presence impacted our thinking, keeping me in Rwanda. Now I counted on my presence to impact the thinking of the killers and keep them away from us. Presence. 
incarnation, companionship, standing beside the suffering through hardship. That's what you call staying power. Listen to the conversation Wilkins had with Laura Lane of the U.S. Consulate Office as they were in the process of evacuating Americans from Rwanda, communicating walkie-talkie live. This is real time. Carl, the missionaries are at the dental compound, are making their way over to the ambassador's home. Over. Laura, good copy. Over. Carl, I'm ready to send my family to the ambassador's home now. Over. Laura, what do you mean, send your family over? I'm not leaving, Carl responded. Laura, we're all leaving. You don't have a choice over, Carl. As a private American citizen, I do have a choice. I'm not leaving over. Okay, well then, Laura replied, you need to sign a paper stating that you have refused the help of the United States government to leave Rwanda over Carl. Okay. Wilkins writes about the notice of intent that he wrote. I took one of Mindy's school notebooks, found a blank page, and wrote with a pencil, I have refused the help of the United States government to leave Rwanda. I signed and dated the declaration, tore the page from its spiral binding, folded it, handed it to Teresa. This is an event that has engraved itself permanently in my memory. To some, it might sound melodramatic, but you have to understand that up to that point, I had this pride and trust in America. Signing, dating, and folding this paper did not take long, but it caused me to pause and think deeply about what that pride and trust really meant. Cutting ties with the possible assistance from the U.S. government was not something I was taking lightly. Friends, coming to the, this dark world was not something Jesus took lightly. As he hung from the cross, he cut ties from heaven. Any assistance available to him, he refused. His declaration was, I'm not leaving I'm not leaving this cross until it is finished. His accuser said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. But Jesus' bold determination was, I'm not leaving. That's how he made a remnant of the lame, by choosing to suffer and to die and to stay. I'm not leaving. We become the remnant because he chose to stay. We become a strong nation because he poured himself out to salvation. In the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, we read of an angel appearing to the carpenter Joseph and telling that humble man that Mary's son would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel saves by entering our sufferings. Emmanuel rescues by remaining in the Rwandas of our lives. In his own words, he says, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and give his life as a ransom for many. For many. When the enemy of our souls left a ransom note at heaven's door, the Son of Man said, I will go. 
I will go. I will go to Rwanda. I will go to Haiti. I will go to the inner city of Chattanooga and Calcutta. I'll go to the four corners of, of Collegedale, to the slums of Calcutta. And coming as a suffering servant, Christ conquered the proud and pompous rebel who is the author of every genocide, every injustice, and every whore the world has ever known. Christ came to suffer that the contrast between Satan's forceful ways and our Savior's humble sacrifice might forever exalt the love of a father who declares, I'm not leaving. No matter your sin, no matter your shame, no matter the struggle you face, his message is, I'm not leaving. Is your daughter addicted or your son strung out? Is termination pending? The mortgage in foreclosure? Is your bank, is your marriage on the brink? Or are you just too successful that you don't know for your own good that you need a God with staying power? This Savior with staying power says to you and me, I'm not leaving. His prom, he, prom, he also promises his spirit as another helper in our hardships. He says, I will pray the Father. I'll pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I will not leave you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Come through the Spirit. I love what the book Steps to Christ points out. On page 75 in Steps to Christ, she describes this promise of John 14 through 16. And then she says this, that the disciples' union with Jesus was closer than when he was personally with them. We are closer to Jesus now through the Holy Spirit than when he walked the roads of Judea and the streets of Jerusalem. Christ hasn't left us. He hasn't left us in our fear. He's here to comfort. He hasn't left us when our prayers aren't answered. Through the Spirit, we are reminded we don't know how to pray as as we should, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness With sighs and groanings our words cannot express. Jesus hasn't left us in our same old sin again and again where we just feel like, will I ever change? He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus has not left us in our shame. There's a spirit, he says, as Tim preached on last week. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. It is the staying power of Christ that becomes heaven's drawing power in our lives. The staying power of Christ that teaches us to dance in the aftermath of our earthquakes and heartaches. In my introduction, I mentioned a young post-collegiate um, on June 17th. Her name ha- happens to be Kelsey, and she's here this morning. Kelsey, would you come forward? She's here to share a brief testimony about the staying power of Jesus and how he taught her to dance again. And when you can just grab this mic here. Um, and uh, so when, uh, come with me here. So um, 
when I approached you and you said, man, God spoke through this message, and I, I just felt like he's calling me. And I said, well, what do you feel like he's calling you to? And he's like, well, I just feel, uh, I feel called to minister to people that have been through trauma. And I went and grabbed my wife, and I was like, Ingrid, you got to talk to this girl, Kelsey, because I think we could get her involved in women's ministry. And then you came over for lunch, and you started to share your story. So, and as we talked, you talked about dancing. So tell us a little bit, Kelsey, about your experience and what God has done for you and Jesus, how his staying power has been drawing you. Hi. <laughs> Happy Sabbath. Some of y'all are probably wondering why I don't have shoes on. <laughs> And that's because this morning, the Lord put on my heart from Exodus 3, verse 5, where God told Moses, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. And so I'm going to share a little testimony starting when I was a three-year-old little girl, little Kelsey. So I was born into a very abusive household with a lot of trauma. And one of the first traumas that I experienced when I was three was from my own mother. She was very sick and um, she had a lot of pain and trauma of her own. I was the type of little girl who was always dancing and twirling around and laughing. And one day my mom grabbed me while I was dancing and she took three-year-old little Kelsey and she threw her across the room into the kitchen table and chairs. I had a giant gash across my back. And the next day at school, my brothers told their teachers what they had witnessed and the police were called. My mom was going to get arrested and my dad decided not to press charges because the lawyers told my father that in the state of California that they would still give custody to my mom and so my dad felt that he had to stay in the marriage in order to try to protect my brothers and I. From that day, I was not the outgoing, dancing, um, singing little girl anymore. Instead, I became the little girl who always wanted to hide I thought that if I wasn't seen, if I wasn't heard, then I would be safe. I believed the lie that no one cared about me. Fast forward to when I was around the age of 17. I still didn't know Jesus at this point, but he knew me. I was having a lot of suicidal thoughts that just continued to get stronger and stronger every single week. And I planned a suicide attempt where I was going to drive my car off a bridge. Well, one day I was sitting in my room and I broke down crying and I just thought, today's the day I can't do it anymore. Well, my family, my dad didn't really know Jesus that well either at this point, but the Holy Spirit moved on my heart and on my dad's heart and some backstories, my dad had a permanent back injury that he had years before. He couldn't move very well. I grabbed my car keys, I started to run out of my room in tears. The Holy Spirit moved upon my dad and my dad got up and he tackled me to the ground. This was the first time in years that I had been hugged or held because I wouldn't let anyone hug me. I believed that everyone's life would be better if I wasn't here. 
I thought no one cared. I thought people would rejoice because that would mean I wasn't a burden anymore for the trauma that I was carrying. When my dad tackled me to the ground and held me, it was like Jesus Christ himself came and grabbed me and was holding me and saying, I love you, I choose you, I'm not leaving, I'm not letting you go. Fast forward to the age of um, when I was around 21, 22, and I lost my ability to walk. I can walk today. <laughs> and when I lost my ability to walk, it was when I was in Cancun, Mexico on vacation. No one could figure out why I couldn't walk. I was in the hospital. I had spinal taps, MRIs. I was very sick. I lost a lot of weight. In the hospital, God called out to me, just like in Isaiah 43, when he says, I've called you by name, you are mine. At that moment was when I said, I'm going to start reading the Bible. I, I learned how to pray and talk to my creator who, fearfully, who made me fearfully and wonderfully made and knit me together in my mother's womb and set me apart for this moment and many other moments to share the love of Jesus. And <laughs> so after a couple months of doing physical therapy and learning about the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave me my ability to walk again and he invited me to dance with him. I no longer need to hide. <laughs> I no longer need to be silent, but I can dance with my husband because the scriptures say thy maker is thy husband. And God has also reconciled my relationship with my father through when he saved me when I was a 17-year-old girl. And so I invite any of you to dance with Jesus today, accept that invitation, and let him heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. Amen. Thank you so much. And if I think if the truth be told, um, you know, all around us are, are Kelsey's. All around us are people that are dealing with the effects of trauma. Um, our entire pastor's meetings this week at, um, at uh, Kahuta was talking about trauma impacting pastors. And actually some of the numbers were showing that pastors have higher incidence of trauma than the general population. I don't remember all the specific details and all the specific questions, but God wants to turn our mourning into dance, dancing. He wants to take uh, and make beauty from our ashes. And uh, several years ago, I think it was actually on the heels of this story about Tim when I was sharing it in Colorado Springs at a, a week of prayer, I wrote a little poem called Let's Dance in the Aftermath, and it's it's, it's written from the perspective of Jesus. So this is if, is if Jesus were speaking to us. He says, I've walked with the wealthy and I've prayed with the poor. I've stood with the mighty and sat with those lying near death's door. From palaces to shanty towns, from urban streets to country roads, wherever there's a willing heart, I will gladly make my abode. 
So come, all you destitute and all those disillusioned, let's dance in the aftermath and sing through our tears. And this morning, um, <clears throat> not only does our Father gather a remnant of the lame by entering into our sufferings, declaring, I'm not leaving, and inviting us to dance, he also says, I want you to help others dance again. He invites us um, uh, to get involved. And I mentioned having an opportunity to connect with Jason Churchwell a few weeks ago. And for the past couple years, Jason has been working as a project director. Is that right? Project, did I get that right? Yeah, you can correct. When you, come on up, Jason. <laughs> um, as a project director at Child Impact, Child Impact is committed to our Father's mission of gathering a remnant of the lame by advocating for children who have been abandoned, abused, or trafficked. And I've invited Jason to share with us about how our church has had the privilege to partner with Child Impact to gather a remnant of the lame. So share with us a little bit, Jason, about what your experience has been in terms of ministering, partnership, and what you've seen God do um, with some of the resources that this congregation has entrusted to Child Impact's care. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Jim. And uh, I'm so grateful to be here with you this morning. So I work for Child Impact International, and many people know us for child sponsorship. We sponsor about 3,500 children to go to Seventh-day Adventist mission schools around the world. Mm. But we also run a program that we call Operation Child Rescue where we rescue children who are vulnerable to exploitation, to human trafficking. And this is a special weekend for us because tomorrow uh, the United Nations has set July 30 aside every year as the World Day Against Human Trafficking. So last year there was a lot of stories in the news mm. about children in a particular country. I won't say the name because mm -hmm. we're live streaming, but if you want to hear more specifically, you can come talk to me afterward. And in this country, uh, there was a lot of food insecurity. 80, 90% of the population is food insecure. And so fathers were selling their oldest daughters to put food on the table for the rest of their children, for their mm. siblings. Mm. And I was like, Lord, I want a project in this country. Mm. But I don't know anyone who lives there. It's a totally co closed country. We could probably count the number of Adventists there um, on our hands. And so I reached out to a friend of mine who was working there, and he'd had some recent converts in this area of the world called the 1040 window. It's 10 degrees latitude to 40 degrees latitude, an area of the world, uh, Middle East, North Africa, Asia, where there's hardly any Christians. It's very difficult to work there. And I said, do you have anyone who you've been working with in this particular country? And he said, actually, I do. I said, well, I have this idea that what if we offered to buy these girls instead of their parents selling them to an older Muslim man as a third or fourth wife. What if we offered to buy them instead? And then we took them to a safe place, we educated them, and we introduced them to Jesus, hmm. all of which are totally illegal hmm. uh, and would cost whoever was running this project their life. And he said, well, I, I've, I've recently worked with this family, we've gone through Bible studies, and they have accepted Jesus they're probably the only Adventist uh, family in this area. I'll connect you. And so I, I, I get in touch with this family and I say, hey, this is what I'm reading about. Is this true? Is this actually happening? Are girls being sold like this? And they said, it's absolutely true, 100%. There's no open market. It's not like advertised on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace for these girls, but it's 100% happening. So I tell them my idea. I tell them my plan. I say, this is what I want to do. Would you be willing to do it? Hmm. And they said, yes. 
We'll mm. risk our lives to do this. And so I, uh, my family's members here, we've been attending Connect with Pastor Chris Eckenroth. And I was on the leadership team there, and I tell Chris my idea. And he says, I, said, he says, I think that's something that the Collegedale University Church would get behind, and we'd support you guys. We'd put in some seed funding. So he presents it to the finance committee here, and this church gave the seed money to rescue the first girls for this project. So right now there are seven girls, ages six to 18, who we've rescued, who we've brought to this, this safe home and are being taught about Jesus. They're receiving an education. And it's because of you. And so uh, this is a, a totally secret project. We don't advertise it uh, in our videos. We don't put it in our magazines. Most of you probably don't even know that you've been supporting a church plant in a closed country uh, with girls who have been bought with Bitcoin. <laughs> to get money even into this country, we had to go through some alternate channels because the current ones are controlled by terrorist networks. So we actually send, we buy Bitcoin, we transfer it to their wallets over there, kind of bypassing this route. And so I get a lot of people's attention when I tell people, they say, what do you do? I say, well, I buy girls with Bitcoin. Um, but we do it to tell them about Jesus, to provide a safe place for them to grow up, to be educated, to have another opportunity. And so I want to say thank you to each of you for your support, to the mission and evangelism offerings of this church. It's doing incredible things all around the world. And no. now we have an opportunity to learn a little more about what you guys are doing. There's a couple things coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. So tonight we have a special Vespers program at the College Dale Community Church at 5 o'clock. And we've flown in some of our partners from some rescue projects around the world. I have a friend from Colombia here. We have some folks from Ukraine from 5 to 6.30 at College Dale Community Church. If you want to come out, I'll show you pictures of these girls. I'm going to talk a little bit more openly about their story. We're not live streaming there. And so we invite you to come out to that. And then tomorrow, right here on the campus of Southern, down at the gym, from 10 to 3.30, we've rented out the pool, the rock climbing wall, the gym, and we'll have about 40 different public service organizations here. The fire truck will be here, the fire department with their huge fire truck, the search and rescue team from the police department will be here, all with resources on how you can keep your family safe to raise awareness of human trafficking. So it'll be a lot of fun. There'll be lots of games for kids and resources for parents and adults right here from 10 to 3 uh, on the campus. And so you're all invited. We want to encourage you to come. But thank you so much, Pastor Jim, for your time. Thank you to this church for your generosity and your support. Thank you. Jason, as you were talking about buying those girls, I was reminded in Corinthians where it says you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your, with your being, with your body. And today, whatever your story, your triumph or your tragedy, may you know that you are his. That he has never left you nor forsaken you. That he is calling you to be a part of this lame remnant to help others, as Martin Luther used to say, we're just beggars helping other beggars know where to find bread. And so I leave you with just um, the words of a song. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you hear the oceans roar? When the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ, the risen one, 
Did you feel the people tremble? Did you hear the singers roar? When the lost began to sing of Jesus Christ, the saving one, and we can see that, God, you're moving a mighty river through the nations, and young and old will turn to Jesus. Fling wide, you heavenly gates. Prepare the way of the risen one. Open up the doors and let the music play and let the streets resound with singing. Songs that bring your hope and songs that bring your joy. And dancers who dance upon injustice. So how is God asking you to dance today? Where is he calling you to stay? Where is he calling you to go? Consider that as you leave this morning. God, are you calling me to stay? Or do you have somewhere you're calling me to go? Whether he says stay or go, I just ask you, please, obey. You won't regret it.